Okay. Well, you can be opening up your Bibles, the book of John, and uh, we'll be looking in chapter 17 today. <clears throat> As you know, we've been uh, studying uh, the Gospel of John since September, and we're going to have about, oh, I think it's about five or six more weeks of this before we'll be moving to something else. So uh, uh, it's been a wonderful study. I, there's so much to learn from John, the Gospel of John, so much to learn from all the Gospels, but John, as I've mentioned before, is unique in that it's, it's, it's kind of different than the others. We call the other three the synoptics because they are similar. They're similar in the style, similar in the events that are depicted, and John has a lot of different stuff, a lot of different things to say. And it's, and it's kind of a different style, too. It's not necessarily chronological order. He spends a lot more time on the last few days of Jesus' life on earth and, uh, and his discussions with the disciples. Uh, and those who are around, and, and preparing them for what is to come in their, in their future lives as, as the apostles and, and their mission to carry out the gospel. We talked last week about what it means to be a disciple, uh, did we not? And we, we dwelt on the, the discussion that Jesus had with the disciples about bearing fruit and the, the statements he was making about being part of the vine, Remember? And how they are the branches, and, and that includes us, right? We, we are the branches that are attached to the vine. And the vine is Jesus. You might say the vine dresser was God, the Father. And we are to bear fruit being part of that vine. As long as we are attached to that vine, as long as we are abiding in him, we should be bearing fruit. And he even talked about how the vine has to be pruned, just like any uh, other gardening, uh, any other plant, right? You, you, you go out in the, in, the, in the fall or the spring and, and you prune, prune what you have in your garden and cut it back so it can grow again and, and be replenished, bear more fruit, right? And he talked about how the, fruit, the branches that do not bear the fruit get pruned and, and thrown away and burned, right? <clears throat> and so we talked about how as Christians we are to bear fruit. And we talked about some ways we do that. Of course, uh, telling others about the gospel, right? Uh, that's part of bearing fruit. Bearing fruit and, and being able to bring others to Jesus. That's part of that. Being ready to, show, uh, to defend our faith uh, to others. Understanding the gospel. Learning, knowing, growing in spirit and in truth. Also about uh, helping those who are in need. Uh, we have many in our congregation that are, that are in need. And, and helping those, whether that's financial, uh, with, with, with health, whatever that is, and those around in our communities, right? It also talked about how we should be growing to be more Christ-like every day. Scripture says, if you draw nigh to him, he will draw nigh to you. We should be becoming more like Christ. I mean, that's what the definition of a disciple is, right? Following someone else, following Christ. A disciple of Christ is to follow and live like he did. Looking at his example, looking at his teachings, his commandments, the way he lived, the way he taught, trying to mimic that in our lives, trying to live like him, becoming more Christ-like in our character, and through all that, having an abundant life. We've talked a lot about the abundant life. Jesus kept talking about it in, in his gospel here. We can have abundant life here on earth, but we've got to be constantly abiding in him. We've got to be the branch that's part of that vine. We have to be willing to be a disciple and willing to, to follow his commands, to obey, to believe and to obey. What a wonderful life we can have and what a wonderful way to live it is in him. We also talked about 
need to do this before we go on, why John was written. And that's over in John chapter 20. We're going to read it again, verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There we have it. We have the reason the gospel's written. We can have life in his name. That life comes through being a disciple, believing in him, being baptized in his name, repenting of our sin, living more Christ-like. Christ was the only man in the flesh who lived without sin on earth. We need to be trying to do that daily. doesn't mean we're not going to sin. Of course, we're going to sin. We're not perfect. But that's part of being that disciple, living a more Christ-like life, sinless as we can be. Well, part of that sinless life or part of that growing in spirit and becoming more Christ-like is a prayer life, is it not? We've talked about that many times, how we should be in prayer daily. That's part of the commands we have to pray. Pray without ceasing, right? You can go back to Daniel when he was under threat of being thrown in the lion's den because he was praying to God. And what did he do? He prayed morning, noon, and night as he had done every day before then. He was brave in the face of death. He knew that God was going to save him. He knew who his Lord was. He knew he needed to have that relationship with God through prayer. We can have that too. That's a wonderful thing, is it not? We can pray to the creator of this universe, the universe that we don't understand, right? This vast universe that boggles our minds to even think about it. And yet we can have a relationship with the creator through prayer. Today we're going to talk about a prayer that Jesus had. It's toward the end of his, um, his ministry. He's about to go to the cross. And some would say it's perhaps the greatest prayer ever prayed. And I, I'm, I'm going to agree with that. In your outlines, you may see some quotes that are done by Brother Copeland there. One is from Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a preacher back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, I think, somewhere in there. And he says, some, prayer, some brethren pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by weight and not by length. Um, have you ever heard someone pray for a really long time and just go on and on and on? Oh, yeah. I can remember as a child sitting in church and someone would get up and pray and just pray and pray and pray. And, you know, as a child, you, it's kind of hard to sit there and listen forever. And, of course, I'm sure you've all heard the old, I don't, I don't know if it's true. I've heard it many times from different people, but, you know, some of our Christian colleges, you know, and I, I went to one of them, and we'd have a Bible class. You had to take Bible uh, each semester. And pretty much in all of my Bible classes, we would start every class off with a prayer, right? And usually the, the, teacher, the professor would have that, the gentleman in the class who were volunteer to pray, he would alternate that each day. And there's the story of one of the Christian colleges where someone was going to take the final exam and he didn't have a chance to study and it was his turn to pray. And guess how long he prayed that day? Yeah. The whole time. I don't know if that's a true story. I've heard that different ways. So I think that might be a myth, perhaps something that was told. But it's pretty funny to think about it. And if you ever went to one of the Christian colleges, you know kind of what I'm talking about there. It can, you know, final exams can be daunting. And if you haven't studied, you know, it might be a good time to be leading the prayer. But anyways, first wonderful thing. This statement that Perse Virgin makes is, is true. 
for the greatest prayer ever prayed. That's recorded in John 17. It's about six minutes long if you read it reverently. Uh, it takes about six minutes, not very long, but it has great depth, it has great weight, it's very powerful. There's approximately 650 prayers in the Bible that you can read through, uh, but none of them can match this one. This has been called the Lord's uh, high priestly prayer, the greatest prayer ever prayed. Some even call it the Lord's prayer, but you know, usually when we refer to the Lord's prayer, we're talking about the prayer that he talked to his disciples about in, in Matthew 6 or Luke 11. But I would say this is probably really the Lord's prayer. It's funny how that one gets quoted all the time, right? Recited. But maybe this one needs to be thought about more. Uh, I don't have the number, but if you go through the Gospels and read about Jesus and notice how many times he prayed to the Father, it's a really high number. In fact, most of the time when you see he's praying, he's going out alone. He's going out into the wilderness before dawn to pray with the Father, to get away. He's spending time personally with himself and the Father. And that's a good example, isn't it? Sure, we, we need public prayer. We, have to, we need to have that, and that's a good thing. But prayer needs to be more personal, too. It's something that you can do with the Father when you're alone. And it's not to be done to be seen. We know that. That's very scriptural, right? It's not something to be done to show, oh, I'm, I'm really good. I, I lead great prayers. And sometimes those long prayers, I think there's a little bit of the bat involved, right? It's something that you need to be doing daily, alone, in your relationship with the Father. Well, I guess uh, we'll read this prayer. This prayer is mentioned in Luke in uh, 22 as well. Um, and you don't see it in John's gospel, but in Luke, it talks about how he was under such stress when he was praying, so much so that he was sweating drops of blood, right? That, that's pretty stressful. I, I've never done that. I've heard it's possible to do. In fact, I think there's a word for it. It's called hematohydrosis, if I said that right, where the capillaries of the small little tiny blood vessels that lead to your sweat glands uh, will burst under such stress where you'll start sweating blood. Uh, I've heard that can happen. I presume that's what Luke was talking about when this is going on, although some would say it's more figurative, perhaps than literal. Nobody really knows. He doesn't mention it in John, but keep in mind, Jesus is under great stress when he's leading this prayer. He knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to go to the cross. And yes, he knows he's going back to the Father, but think about the pain that he's going to have to endure. The humility, uh, not the humility, the fact that he is God and he's going to have to humble himself to the lowest of the low. Take on sin from all of us, the man-God. It's hard to fathom that, right, in our finite minds, our fleshly minds, but uh, I can imagine that had to be pretty stressful, pretty stressful for him. Let's read the prayer, beginning in John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. 
I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given, them, given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. And have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep to your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Okay. Very powerful statements. Very powerful things Jesus is talking about. What is it about this prayer that makes it so great? What is, what is it? Well, of course, first, who's, making the, who's saying it? The person who's saying it, right? Uh, let's go back over to John chapter 1. Just read a few verses again. It's been a, been a few months since we studied the first chapter. Let's look and see what's said there. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There you go. Jesus is revealed in the Gospel as God. He's the Word, and He is God. Verse 2. Actually, I've lost my place there. All right. He was in the beginning. All things were made, verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him... Nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's also in the beginning with God. He is the life. He is the light of men, and he's the creator of all things. He's God. He was there in the beginning. He's always been. Verse 14, perhaps one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. So, first and foremost, the prayer is great because God 
Jesus, the Son of God, the man in the flesh who is God, is praying the prayer. That makes it very powerful, right? Jesus, who was proclaimed in the gospel, as we said, the Word. And if you go through John, there are many other statements made about him. He's the Lamb of God, right? The sacrifice. He is the Son of God. Chapter 1 talks about that. He is the King of Israel. We know that from John chapter 1. He is the promised Messiah. We read that in chapter 4. The promised Messiah who the Jews were looking for to set up a kingdom, a great kingdom again on earth. Chapter 6, we talked about how he's the bread of life and how that confused the, the, the Jews and, and they didn't understand what he was talking about there. Chapter 8, again, the light of the world, as we mentioned in chapter 1. Chapter 8 also says he was the great I am, which to the Pharisees, to the scribes, that was heresy, right? For him to say, I am God, I am, always been, always will be. Chapter 10, talked about him being the good shepherd, our good shepherd, the one that loves us, that seeks out for us when in need, that goes and searches for the one when he's lost. Chapter 11, resurrection and the life. So here we have the God-man in the flesh praying a prayer to the Father. Makes it great. Makes him the greatest, of course, he's the greatest person ever lived. Makes that prayer great. What else makes this prayer great? Well, Obviously, as we already mentioned here, it's the occasion, right? Just mentioned, he knows he's about to go to the cross. He knows he's about to be crucified. And this prayer becomes great, perhaps simply because of the circumstances. In your outline, there's a quote from Neil Armstrong. We all know the quote from Neil Armstrong when he landed on the moon, right? When, when he landed on the moon? If, if you may be one of those that doesn't believe that he actually landed on the moon, I do, but, you know. I can remember that like it was yesterday. I was about, I think I was about seven years old when that happened. And I can remember going out there and trying to look up the moon to see if I could see the lunar module sitting on the moon, you know. I can remember that. I also remember what he said. We, we got out of class that day and got to watch the TV. You know, that was pretty cool because we got to get out of class. But he said, what was it? Yeah, yeah, you know it. You've got, got it. One small step for a man... One giant leap for mankind. Now, suppose he'd been out in the neighborhood playing hopscotch with the kids and said that. Makes sense. You could see somebody saying that when they're playing hopscotch, right? But it wouldn't have had the weight it had, right? Who would have cared? The kids would have probably laughed at him. And, you know, old man jumping hopscotch with them. Hey, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Be funny. But nobody would have remembered it, right? Because of the occasion. Man landed on the moon. A lot of people never thought that would happen. I think there's another phrase, right? Yeah, that'll happen when man, land, when man goes to the moon, right? We still probably say that about when man goes to Mars or wherever. Yes, ma'am. I've heard that, uh, yes, him and Buzz. I don't know if it's him or Buzz Aldrin did, took communion on the moon. I believe they did, yeah. They were only there a few hours. They weren't very long, but yeah, I think that's right. Actually, Brother Kritmer, if he's here, could tell us that probably. Because, you know, he was in Houston at the time at uh, Mission Control. All right. Um, so, anyways, the occasion surrounding this prayer makes it great. Uh, and notice the first words he says Father, the hour has come. 
I mean, he's saying it right there. This is the hour. This is it. This is the main reason. Well, yeah, that's the main reason I came. To save the lost. To die for sin. That's why it's here. It's here now. In fact, if you turn back over in chapter 16 there, right at the end, and you can read that. Verse 31 of chapter 16, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He has an appointment with a cross, a true separation. Uh, the, the disciples are going to betray him in a sense, going to deny him, right? It's going to be great suffering, of course, the crucifixion. Uh, it's a time when God's eternal purpose is to be carried out. It's finally happening. It's finally going to occur. A time when Jesus is about to bear the sins of the world on the cross. Not just the sins that had occurred, but the sins that are come. All of our sins today are born on the cross. Also, what else makes this uh, kind of a great prayer? Well, who's, who's in Christ's mind at this time? Who's he thinking about when he's praying? Contents of the prayer are dealing with great themes, right? It's taking us back into eternity and forward into time. Uh, back to eternity past when he was with God and forward when he's going back to him. It deals with glory, the glory of the Father and the Son. He talks about the disciples glorifying God on earth. He talks about giving glory, God, the Son giving glory to his disciples and the disciples beholding the glory of the Son. There's a lot of talk about that, right? Sometimes it's kind of hard to understand what exactly he means by that, isn't it? What is his glory? What, what, what makes this so great? Of course, well, he's God, right? We know that. That makes, he's glorified simply because of that. But the glory really comes because he did what the Father wanted. He was given a mission. He was given commands. He came to the earth. He followed the will of the Father. That's how he glorified the Father. And these who God had given him are glorifying him and their belief and their faith and their willingness to do what the Father wants. The same is for us. That's how we glorify the Father. Obeying His will, carrying out His mission, living for Him, being a disciple. That's how we do it. Talked about that before, and He talks about in this prayer. Those who are of the world don't understand that, right? We are not of the world. They were not of the world. They have to live in the world just like we do, we're not of the world. That's so hard to keep in mind, isn't it? We get so busy in the world. We get so busy with our lives, with our work, with our, our things that are going on, the things that we want to do. We forget sometimes that we're not of this world. Perhaps we get tempted by the world and, and we fail because of that. I can't emphasize that enough. We are not of this world. We glorify the Father by showing the world who the Father is, by being examples, by living a life that's so unworldly they can't fathom it. They can't get it. They don't understand it. They think it's stupid. And yet, we know it's not because the truth has been revealed. And it's really simple. 
This prayer talks about love. The Father's love for his believers, right? The Father's love for Jesus. And of course, Jesus' love for his disciples. It contains great petitions. He says, glorify me, Father. Keep them, sanctify them, that they may all be one, that they may behold my glory. Some have called this a unity prayer. He's asking for God to keep them, that they might be one, united. Same with us, together. You know, united we stand, right? Divided we fall. Has great, three great divisions. The first few verses, about the first five, is Jesus praying for himself. And then you might say the, the next 10 or 15, he's praying for his disciples. And then the last part of the verse, he's praying for us. He's praying for those who are going to hear the word through his disciples. You might say that the disciples did far greater works than Jesus ever did. Wait a minute. How can you say that? Well, Jesus just came to the house of Israel. He was only here for a short time. He sent these disciples out into all the world. And by the end of their lives, pretty much, the known world was evangelized. They had heard, right? So you could say perhaps they did far greater works than Jesus did. They glorified the Father because they, he sent them out. That's what makes this prayer so great. That's what makes our understanding of it, our willingness to be disciples, our willingness to glorify the Father so adamant, so, so catamount to being a Christian, a disciple, right? Even a short exam of its contents reveal the greatness, right? Another reason he prayed this prayer, another reason it's great is because we have victory revealed in this prayer. You know, if you're going to believe in him, you've got to believe what he says, right? And you've got to believe that what he says is truth, and of course you have the miracles, the works, all those things that he did to prove who he was, and he ends the prayer in saying, I have overcome the world. We're not in the world the world's going to hate you, just like it hated him. He's overcome. Man, that should give us great comfort. That should give us great confidence to carry on. Pertaining to the world, he used that term 19 times in this one prayer, which is a justifiable concern. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. Let's read a passage from there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh... Let's begin in verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and in the face of Jesus Christ. 
we have been justified and sanctified. We have been separated from Satan, the evil one. The world has been deceived by him, and we can now see the truth in his glory. This prayer pertains to the world, and that's what he's talking about. The world has been deceived by the evil one. Turn over to 1 John. Let's read a verse from there. Chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. It's a dangerous thing to be part of the world. It's passing away. You're not of the world. You're of the kingdom. The kingdom that will live forever. The kingdom that will be forever. The kingdom that Jesus is now reigning in, in heaven. James 1, turn over there. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The world has defiled everyone that's in the world. They're defiled by the world. James says, don't do it. Keep yourselves from it. Be out of the world. The world is divided. Yet Jesus has overcome the world. In chapter 17, he talks about the fact that he has overcome the world because of his reality. The world may be dying. The world may be passing away. But we can be part of the kingdom. The reality of the one true God. The one true God who is willing to save us, who's loved us so much that he sent his only son that we may be saved, we may be sanctified, set apart from the world and that we might have unity together through his glory. I mean, it, this prayer is very powerful. This prayer is very uh, unique in that sense. We have great power as Christians through him. Not of ourselves, but through his glory, through what he's done for us. It should give you confidence to be able to live an abundant life in Him without fear. Without fear to be going out and talking about your faith. Without fear to tell those who are in the world they need to repent. Without fear to live a life that's clean, that's good, that's helping of others. That's a good example, showing the world who Christ is. Greatest prayer ever prayed, the high priestly prayer, is on behalf of Jesus' disciples, but it's for us. It's as much for us as it is for those of the first century there when he was praying it. Now, I can't imagine what it was like when him in the garden, when he's praying there, the stress that he was under. I, I've, I've been stressed out in my life, I guess, but I don't think anything like him. And I know probably some of you have too, especially 
if you had a sickness and uh, there's probably some here that have been on the brink of death or if not you, a loved one and I know that can be highly stressful I mean, you know, just stressing the job ain't nothing compared to that, right? But nothing like what he was going through there He did it for us He died for us He took on the sins of the world and you know what happened, right? We have the other examples, right? Where the sky was darkened, earthquakes, right? Dead were raised, walking around. It was a powerful event. We don't seem to fathom that sometimes. We take that kind of lightly, don't we? It's a powerful event. I mean, he was taking on the sins of the world. And remember how he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A lot of scholars have tried to explain that. The only thing I can think of is that it was like God was rejecting him because he was covered with sin. He was, he was so full of sin that God couldn't even look on him. Can you imagine that? Your own father rejecting you because of your sin? Maybe some of you could a little bit. I don't know. It's a powerful thing. He was glorified, though, and he was raised again. He was raised again. And he's ascended into heaven. Man, I'm thankful for that. And that should give you great confidence. The greatest prayer ever prayed was for the disciples, and it was for you. He's got you back. Why not be living a life like Christ? Why not be glorifying him in everything you do? And if you're not, today, March 14th, is a great day to start. Okay, time is up. Thanks for being here.